0: Let's turn our attention to God's word now. Uh, You can turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 23. And before we get to reading this morning's passage, a few words of context. This is our last sermon in our series uh, in the book of Joshua, even though this isn't the last chapter of the book. Uh, We got the last chapter of the book last week. uh, But really, the last three, three chapters of Joshua pretty much deal with the same theme what happens in the future? What happens after Joshua dies? Um, In chapter 22, the tribes living east of the Jordan were worried that they'd be estranged from the covenant in the future because they lived outside of the promised land. In chapter 24, we heard last week that uh, Israel renewed their covenant to the Lord. It was a reaffirmation of their commitment to serve the Lord and to cling to him alone in the future. And both these chapters are concerned with how uh, Israel will move forward now that they've received the rest uh, in the promised land. And chapter 23 is no different. Uh, So let's see what Joshua has to say to the Israelite leaders as they prepare for life without Joshua and Joshua's godly uh, and powerful leadership. So uh, starting in verse one in Joshua chapter 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well-advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well-advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought uh, for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance to Uh, For your tribes, these nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep all and do all that is written in the book of the Law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or mention, uh, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the lord your god who fights for you just as he promised you be very careful therefore to love the lord your god if you for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you know for certain that the lord your god will no longer drive these nations before you or drive out these nations before you but they shall be as a snare And a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish off from this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And I am now about, uh, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Joshua's wisdom to speak to the leaders of Israel one last time. And Lord, as he speaks to them, give us eyes to see how you are speaking to us. We have many concerns, many worries, many cares, But Lord, we ask that you would focus our hearts and our minds upon you, that we would see and cling to you as Joshua has told us to. And Lord, uh, most of all, we ask that you would show us Jesus in this passage, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So uh, back when Sarah and I were first married, I would often complain that I was out of shape. not a lot has changed, right? Um, back then, I played ultimate frisbee um, in a in a, in, a, in an ultimate league, and Sarah would tell me uh, to please be careful before each game, and be careful. Two words, but loaded with meaning. She's not just telling me to avoid uh, major injury. Uh, she means a lot of other things too. Uh, one of them might be remember that you're out of shape. Be careful, don't push it too hard or you'll be broken for a week. Or maybe remember that you're not in your 20s anymore. Be careful, don't push it too hard. Or remember that your opponents are in far better shape than you. Don't push it too hard. Or remember that you're a pastor. Uh, Don't get too competitive and hurt somebody either physically, emotionally, or spiritually, right? That's important. Uh, In the heat of the moment, because we all know that I'm super competitive, Don't push it too hard. And if you remember all the stories that I've told you about my competitiveness from up here, right, you'll know that one, I disregard my limits regularly, and two, that I'm like hyper competitive. So Sarah is very wise in telling me to be very careful, right, uh, before I line up to play. But really, what is she doing? She's calling me to remember the events that have led up to the present all those days that i've woken up so sore that i can't move because of the way that i played the day before and she's also calling me to remember my true identity old and wildly out of shape rather than the identity that i have in my head which is college frank who can run all day and then wake up the next morning and run all day again right not going to happen now but she's not just asking me to remember the, the past and my present but also to behave in light of all of those things in the future right in the game to come those future runs that i make those future dives that i probably should not make right she's asking me to live in light of the past and my present in the future And that's really what Joshua is doing here in chapter 23. He's reminding the Israelite leaders of God's faithfulness in the past and who they are in the present and calling them to live faithfully in the future in light of that past and their present. And he's also telling them to be very careful because it'll be super easy for the Israelites to be unfaithful. And so thus, along with the reminders and the command to be faithful, there are warnings too. You'll be broken for a week if you're not faithful to your limits and your boundaries. But for them, they won't be broken for a week. It'll be much, much worse. And so let's work our way through Joshua uh, 23 and see what he says. And hopefully we'll see how this points us to the gospel. So as we see Joshua before the leaders of the tribes of Israel, he knows that the end is coming. He's old and well-advanced in years, and he wants to make sure that he gives them guidance as they prepare for life without him and his godly leadership, and that mantle will fall upon those that hear uh, his words. And to prepare these present and future leaders for the task that is before them, he reminds them of all that the Lord has done. And the chapter sort of weaves together the themes of God's faithfulness, the commands for the future, and the warnings against unfaithfulness. And so. These themes sort of come in chunks, and they sort of you get faithfulness, and then commands, and then faithfulness again, and then some command, and then unfaithfulness, and then more of God's faithfulness, and they sort of weave together. And um, I had them color-coded for you, but they didn't show up in the slide, so if you would like to see them color-coded, they're on uh, my sermon manuscript, which is on the website. But we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5, then 9 through 10, and 14, verse 14 to see Joshua talking about God's faithfulness. In verses three through five, Joshua reminds the Israelites of all the great things that God has done during the conquest. Think about uh, the walls coming down at Jericho, the brilliant strategy given to Joshua to overcome Ai, the massive hailstones that killed thousands upon thousands at Gibeon during the southern campaign, the sun and the moon standing still so that Joshua could finish annihilating the armies of the southern kings the route of the northern kings and their vast armies that were too big to be counted, uh, along with their powerful chariots and their cavalry. And These were the amazing things that God did. And sure, the Israelites did the fighting, right? They fought, and, but it was the Lord that gave them the victory. It was the Lord that pushed back the nations before the Israelites, and it was the Lord that gave them the land that they now possess and enjoy. And so as verse 10 puts it, it is the Lord that gives the Israelite soldier the battle strength of a thousand Canaanites. And that kind of strength cannot come from human skill or human strength. Right? An exceptional man, an exceptional man might be able to take on 10 men at once. But that pales in comparison to the strength that the Lord gave to the rank and file. The lowliest soldier right? The weakest guy, the guy that when you look at him, you're like, you're not going to make it, right? That man overcomes a thousand of the greatest warriors of Canaan. A th- one man putting flight to a thousand, that's just crazy. That's supernatural. And so Joshua wants to highlight not just that God is unimaginably powerful, but also that he's on their side. But even then, with God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, squarely in your corner, there's still sometimes doubt that creeps in. Because as much as he has done it before, the question still remains, will he do it again? Will he actually do so, something so wild and amazing that it defies belief in the future? Every time that you come across something that is crazy and hard and something that you cannot overcome, that question comes back to your, to your mind. Will the Lord come through for this thing? That's what would be necessary moving forward for the Israelites. Remember, there are still Canaanites in the land. The conquest was mostly over, and the promised land was solidly in Israelite hands, but there was the work wasn't done. The Canaanites that were still in the land were still powerful. If we remember back to that giant five chapter sermon that Dave gave with the uh, uh, allotment of the land uh, back in Joshua chapters like 14 to like 18 or something like that. But in Joshua 17, the people of Manasseh and Ephraim complain that their land is like too small. And so Joshua says, well, go clear out this plain over here. And then you'll have enough room. And what do they say? They they say, but we can't. The the Canaanites there, they've they've got chariots of iron and cavalry, to which Joshua's like, seriously? We think about all that we've just done. The Lord will do it. Just go do it. The Lord will do it, right? But that still reminds us that these enemies are powerful. The military power disparity is very wide and the Canaanites were the ones who had all the advantages. And so Israel has no chance against these Canaanites unless God was on their side because everything pointed to them, the Israelites, getting crushed. Why? Because they've got like pointed wooden sticks and these guys have iron chariots. But God had promised that they would possess the land and that he would push them out. And so verse 14 doesn't mince words. Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. So it's not just that God is great, but that he is faithful to all of his promises. But with these promises come a responsibility to the Lord. The Israelites just couldn't do whatever they wanted. They needed to cling to the Lord. And if they didn't, well, it wasn't going to be good. In verses 6 to 8, 11 through 13, and uh, 15 to 16, which are the other verses in the passage, we see that Joshua reminds the Israelites of the requirements of the covenant, right? The covenant are a binding agreement, not only of what God will do, but also of what we will do as well. And basically, the requirements are cling to the Lord. They needed to be faithful to avoid going after other gods. And really, he's just echoing stuff that they already knew. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 15, in the original promise of receiving the promised land, I mean, we could go all the way back to Genesis if we wanted to, but in Deuteronomy 6, we could hear these sort of familiar calls to faithfulness and the corresponding warnings against unfaithfulness as well. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear you shall not go up after other gods and the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you off from off the face of the earth. And so do you hear the similarities from Deuteronomy and to Joshua? Do you hear both the positive commands to be faithful and the negative warnings against unfaithfulness and mixing with the peoples around them god requires us to be faithful but it's not because he's like a controlling like egomaniac you see sin is a great affront to god he's infinitely good and infinitely worthy and we are his creation we're just mud and dirt right from God. He deserves our obedience, our faithfulness and worship. As his creation, when we disobey him, it's not just that we've done something wrong. It's not just that we've broken his commands, but it's also that we're expressing contempt and scorn for God himself as well. And so, just as when we break a rule of our our mom or our dad, it's not just that we've broken the rule but that we've disobeyed a person. So it is with God that when we sin against him, when we sin and break the proverbial rule, we're we're hurting and expressing contempt for a person. And so in in essence we're saying, God, you don't matter to me right now. The only thing that matters is me. And then sort of some sort of expletive you. That's what we're saying when we really think about what sin is. And he's the only one that doesn't deserve that. And because he's infinitely good and infinitely worthy and, and the source of all authority, he cannot abide sin. In his presence and so his very character who he is requires that sin be punished and so the israelites needed to take care to be faithful lest they receive what they deserve which is judgment and we've seen the judgment of the lord executed throughout the exodus story and the conquest of the promised land and all of that power and all of that might that was poured out on israel's enemies can be directed at the israelites too if they become the canaanites or like the Canaanites, horrible, terrible, sinful idolaters. And so it is right for Joshua to charge the Israelites to be faithful after he died, because God deserves faithfulness, demands faithfulness, and rightly so. And we saw that last week during the covenantal renewal ceremony in chapter 4, Joshua calls them to reaffirm their commitment to the Lord, and the only fitting answer is yes. Yes. And here is where we can get ourselves into trouble because it would be an easy jump to apply this directly to ourselves. Look at what God did for the people of Israel. He brought them up out of the land of Egypt, sustained them through the wilderness, conquered the impregnable fortresses of the promised land through the great displays of his power and faithfulness. And now Joshua is asking them to be faithful. Great, awesome. I know what I need to do. God is faithful. I need to be faithful too. That's the message of the story in a nutshell. But the problem is, we can't. All the books between Joshua and the Gospels show that the Israelites couldn't stay faithful, that as much as they affirmed it now, they wouldn't hold to those commitments. Even the wisest of them, Solomon, who was renowned for his wisdom and insight, he ended his reign in shame and sin. And why? Because in First Kings 11, we're told that he loved foreign women. He clung to these women in love in clear violation of Joshua 23. Now, as an aside, God isn't against interracial marriage, obviously, like, right? Um, but rather, extra-covenantal marriage. He doesn't want the Israelites to be drawn away from a wholehearted and faithful devotion to him because of the influence of pagan spouses. And so the warnings of verses 12 to 13 in Joshua 23 that pagan spouses would be a snare and a trap for the people of Israel would prove to be prophetic. If we look back on the whole spiritual arc of Israel, from Joshua to Jesus, the biggest issues dealt with idolatry And where did they start? They started by mixing with their pagan neighbors and the Canaanites that the Israelites failed to drive out. And so again, as we look across the pages of the Old Testament from Joshua to Jesus, we can see that one of the great messages of the Old Testament is that people both can't be faithful and they don't want to be faithful. As we saw last week, these people wholeheartedly affirmed their desire to serve the Lord, to cling to him, to love only him. But when the time came to actually do that, they chased other gods because those gods were easier to follow and more fun to follow. And so the pages of the Old Testament reveal that the human heart wants nothing to do with faithfulness. To the Lord, because really what we want is faithfulness to ourselves. And we can trace that all the way back to the garden. That's the original sin. We don't want God to be in charge, we want to be in charge ourselves. We want to be faithful to me, to what I want. And so Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. And that means that we want sin. We're sinners because we like sin. We sin because we're sinners, not we're sinners because we sin. And so that means we can't preach that God is faithful and so therefore you must be faithful too because we can't do it. And because we don't actually want it either. And really what we've done when we preach that, when we preach God is faithful so you go and do likewise, we miss one important step. And that's the gospel. We've we've done theological hopscotch to skip from wherever we are in the Bible directly to us and forgotten to hit Jesus first. And so you see, while it was right for Joshua to tell them to be obedient lest the Lord judge them for their sin, we are on the other side of the cross. And so the gospel changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Jesus is the one who clung to the Lord as Joshua commanded and did what we could not do and did what we did not want to do. Jesus is the one who shunned idols and resisted the siren call of idolatry and temptation. He is the one who did all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor the left. And he is the true and faithful Israelite who looks to the Father for everything. And so think about it. Think about Jesus's faithfulness to the Lord. When Jesus comes up against powerful opponents or against even the subtlest of temptations, what does he do? He prays. He runs to the Lord in help for help in his time of need. Especially think about his time right before the cross. What is he doing when he's facing the cross? What is the thing that he does before anything else? He goes and he prays. He spends time with his father in every way he clings to the Lord. Even when he was forsaken on the cross, what did he do? He still said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He clung to the Lord even when he he looked out and he saw no sign of the Lord with him. That's the kind of faithfulness that Joshua was calling the Israelites to live. That even as they look out upon the powerful forces of the Canaanites and they say, there is no way that I can win. They are to cling to the Lord and say, it does not matter because God is mine. That's the kind of faithfulness that we're called to, the singular devotion to the Lord, no matter the odds or circumstances. That's a faithfulness that we couldn't dream of living. And yet that is the faithfulness that we have in our union with Christ. Jesus died for our sins in obedience and faith, trusting the Lord to defeat an enemy that no one else could defeat, which is death itself. And when he rose in resurrection life we saw that the Lord we saw the Lord do something far more powerful than giving one man the power of a thousand. In Christ we are able to be faithful because we have been changed through and through by the power of his holy spirit. In Christ we have been made alive by grace through faith. And now we are able to delight in that which is good and true that we no longer delight in that which is evil. And so we are no longer slaves to the passions of our flesh and the desires of our body and our mind. Rather, we can delight in truth. We can delight in the truth that God is God and that I am not. Praise God that I am not in charge. Praise God that it is not up to me to remain faithful, but that he did it for me. And so where do we go from here? How does Joshua 23 apply to us here in 2021? in and through the gospel. And I think it starts by thinking about what the call was to the Israelites in, back in the day. What was the posture and intent of the call to remain faithful? And so in a lot of ways, it was sort of to distance the Israelites from their pagan neighbors. The remaining Canaanites were adversaries. They were to be destroyed. They were to be pushed out or shoved out, as sort of the Hebrew says it. The Israelites needed to finish the work that was started with the conquest of the land. And so those pagans over there were a threat to faithfulness. Don't mix with those folks over there. They're not good for, they're not good for us. They're not good influences. And thus, there would be an adversarial outlook on both foreign and social relations, if you, would, uh, if you will. And so life looked like one of conflict and threats. The nations and the world are evil and we are called to fight the good fight, trusting in the Lord through the process. Their call is to drive out and destroy while remaining pure and isolated from from the world. Sound pretty familiar? Sounds like a lot of the rhetoric that we hear about what Christians ought to be doing. But this isn't our call. Because the gospel changes things. Because in Christ... We're secure in our salvation. Our, our salvation does not depend on our faithfulness, remember. And so we can't do anything to lose our salvation. And so nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor principalities. Romans 8, right? We can't lose it. And so we are secure. And so those threats over there aren't threats anymore. While we were spiritually dead, God set his love upon us and made us alive in him. And while we are still called to be faithful and righteous, we do so not because we have to, but because we want to, right? Not because we have to stay pure because of the influences that could come and corrupt us, but because we want to, because it has already been done. because it is based on the finished and unassailable work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can go out into the midst of an evil and crooked generation to do what? To do what? What is our great call? Our great call is to live boldly and to proclaim the Lord Jesus. Right? When I was in high school, I was playing in band. I played trumpet, so it's a pretty loud instrument. But our band teacher always said, don't worry about making a mistake. Play loudly and proudly. Why? Because when you do mess up, then we can correct it. And then you can play rightly as well. And so as we walk out into a world full of sin, world full of danger, we can go out boldly. Why? Because we're safe already. And we can be bold even as we go and we mess up. Why? Because we're already saved and we're safe and we're secure. I don't have to worry about the might and the fury of God breaking over me because Christ has already taken all of it for us. And so that security means that we're no longer looking to drive out and destroy. We're no longer looking to push back and drive them out like the Israelites were. No, our call is to bring in. To go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. And that's radically different. We're pulling in people and blessing them rather than driving them out. We're going out and meeting sinners, people who are dead in their trespasses and ruled by the passions of their flesh, just like we were. And we're meeting them right where they are, getting down in the muck and the mire with them so that we can show them that the Lord Jesus did the exact same thing for us. That's what it means to cling to the Lord and to be faithfully obedient to him these days. To trust him with our everything, not only for our faithfulness and our salvation, but also for our righteousness as well. Christians are called to be conformed to the image of the Son, and the image that we ought to be displaying is the one that loves the things that the Lord loves. Righteousness, of course. Faithfulness, of course, but also the lost. And so let us live in confidence in Christ because just like the Israelites of Joshua's day, we have seen him do great things for us. We too have an adversary that we must defeat. But instead of it being people, it's the devil and sin itself. And while we don't have the the power and the strength to overcome these foes on our own, we know that the Lord God Almighty will not fail to deliver them into our hands, not for destruction, but for baptizing and rejoicing as the Lord saves. That's our call this morning. To go out and to love people that are hard to love. As I said this morning, we face division in our ranks. We face sin as we deal with people in our own hearts. And yet we can be bold to love those that are different from us, those that don't hold our opinion, our own opinions. And it also enables us to meet them where they are, to lay down our rights, our privileges, to lay down our preferences, to do things sacrificially. Why? Because we're already taken care of in Christ Jesus. And so let us be a church that clings to the Lord for everything, not only for faithfulness, but for every mundane thing that involves, that we do in our lives, for the way in which we relate to one another, for the way in which we relate to ourselves as well. That's what it means to cling to the Lord these days. Let's pray. Father God, we are sinful, sinful people that continually turn aside to the left and to the right. That we do not do all that is written in the law of Moses, in the book of the law of Moses. That we are unfaithful and we chase after other gods. We chase after, really, ourselves. That we would be in charge, that we would get what we want instead of what you want. But Lord, thank you so much for your gospel that you sent your Son to change us, to die for us, to make us alive and new in you. And Lord, as we live out of the reality of our salvation, as we live in light of the resurrection, Lord, make us a people that is humble and gracious. Make us a people that are loving and kind that seek to draw in instead of drive out. Lord, help us bear with one another in patience and in grace, seeking the unity of the body of Christ. Lord, help us draw others into that unity, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen.